Welcome back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. This week, Teen Days sat down to chat on the Idiom Podcast. If you're not familiar with him, Teen Days is an electronic musician from Canada who's well known for his melodic and atmospheric productions. He's released nine full-length albums on the project since he started it in 2010, which is crazy, and that doesn't include his multiple other side projects and aliases. I was excited to have Teen Days, whose real name is Jameson Isaac, on the show because, other than being just a personal fan of his music, he's released an incredible stream of solid music over the past 10 years. We dive deep into Jameson's background, talking about the dozens of full albums he made before he even launched this Teen Days project. He went to college for audio engineering, which is always a contentious topic, and he breaks down why he's glad he did that and whether or not he thinks that's necessary to do in 2020. On the production side, he breaks down his full writing workflow, talking about how he starts, develops, and finishes ideas. He essentially takes a song from zero to about 90% in just one session, which isn't how most people work, so it's interesting to hear how he's able to work so quickly and effectively in the studio. Jameson also offers great advice on finding your sound and developing a vision for your project, something that he really admittedly didn't have early on. He very much fell into making a career out of music, which isn't typically the case with most artists. We also talk about the benefits of focusing on albums with your artist project like he does, which helps him to stay more productive and creative in the studio. Now, this is a bit of a longer interview, but trust me, it's worth listening through it because as you'll hear, Jameson has a ton of interesting advice and perspectives to share. One last thing, you should all go check out Teen Days' sixth full-length album, Bioluminescence, which he dropped earlier last year. It's an impressive body of work, and it's definitely worth listening to from start to finish. I'll play you my favorite single off of it, which is called Hidden Words, as we slide into the interview. With that, let's wrap things up. Here's the Idiom Podcast with Teen Days. Welcome back to the Edium Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jameson, who releases it under the name Teen Days. Jameson, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Yeah. So to start, I'd love to learn a bit about your background with music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd love to learn what got you into music and more specifically music production. Yeah. Um, I mean, I grew up in a pretty um, like musical household. Um, my dad is a uh, pretty accomplished violin player and uh yeah it always just felt like there was instruments around the house um so growing up just sort of around those I like always had this fascination by them um and then my mom also just had a really I remember my mom always had a really big record collection and so there was this sort of uh twofold fascination with everything anything to do with music really um i also grew up in the going to church and so i had exposure to you know if you want to call that live music from a pretty yeah. early age um <laughs> uh so i started i yeah i started playing piano at i think like age four i think um and Probably did that for a good like three or four years. Um, I think like any kid, I just it was I liked sitting at the piano and sort of just hitting keys or or you know like 
um, having fun and, and playing uh, and then the whole practicing and sort of like really trying to master a song was never something that really interested me as a kid. So I kind of like f- fell off from those lessons. Uh, and then when I entered uh, the seventh grade, that was the first time I went to a school that had an actual band class and a music program. And uh, I decided I was going to play the drums. That was just... I, I don't know what it was. I, I must have come home after the first day of school and was like, hey, mom and dad, I need a drum set because uh, this is what I'm doing now. And thankfully, again, like my parents having that love of music, I think they saw that in me and and were very quick to support and sort of create a, an infrastructure for me to be able to explore that passion. It was never the sort of thing that was like, no, that's like foolishness or or, you know, I, I always felt very supported in any sort of musical endeavor that I wanted to go into. Uh, so yeah, I, I got my first drum set in grade seven and was, you know, obsessed, played the drums, uh, in all the way up until, you know, my, my senior year of high school played in the jazz band at school. Um, I did a couple sort of extracurricular, uh, partnerships that my high school had with um, the University of Manitoba. I was living in the province of Manitoba at the time. And so I did a couple projects where I was playing percussion for the University of Manitoba wind ensemble. Um, It was kind of looking like I was going to study music at that school after high school. Um, But, but yeah, somewhere along the line, um, the college that my older brother went to, I, in, in one trip and going to visit him and walk here on the campus, he just sort of very, as an aside was like, Oh, here's the recording studio that the, that the college has. And for whatever reason that just like sparked something in my brain, um, that really stuck with me. I think I was probably like 16 at the time. I wasn't even close to graduating. And, uh, yeah, that's that one sort of aside sort of set me on this path where I, it's funny thinking about it now, you know, years later about how much of the last uh, 10 years of doing teen days has been about this, the tension between performance and recording and how that felt like a really big shift in my life where it was all about performance. It was all about playing the drums live, playing a guitar live recording was something that just wasn't in my life whatsoever. As soon as I realized that, um, that world of production and recording wasn't this sort of far away mystical sort of, you know, uh, thing. It was something that I could actually be involved in and get my hands and my mind around. It just switched for me. I, the idea of performing wasn't, wasn't a big deal. It was like, I just want to be in the studio. I just want to learn how to record. Um, and so I ended up going to that school and taking recording classes there. And yeah, honestly, and that, I, like I said, that sort of set my musical life onto a tra- trajectory that has really brought me here today. So when you said that you were getting into recording, was that recording for other bands, recording your own music? And kind of at what point did you get started with writing? Yeah, it was definitely around that time of that first year of, of college um, taking those classes. It's funny, the first semester class was very theoretical, was very... Um, it was more about the physics of recording and about mic placement and, um, you know, sound waves. 
shaping a space, much more heady sort of concepts. So I think I was taking a lot of those ideas that I had and was bringing them back to my dorm room and exercising the the theories and things that I was coming up with there. Because though we were given time to be in an actual, to be in the studio recording either our own projects or friends, bands or stuff like that, um, the time was quite limited there. I had about 30 students in that class with me and there was only two studio spaces. So really everyone was getting like, you know, two hours a week or something like that. So it was during that time that again, a very sort of random encounter, a friend of mine was like, um, Hey, I, I just got this program that you can make beats in. And that was sort of the, the <laughs> only thing that I, and I was like, well, yeah. I was like, well, what do you mean? Like show this to me. And it was, uh, it was reason 2.5. This is, this is in like 2004, probably I think. And I was just so enamored by it. And again, as, as a student who was learning about all of you know, all of the, the more technical, uh, really like scientific side of recording, this was a, such a cool outlet to be able to do something that was truly, again, just playing. It was less about sort of mastering this science and more about like uh, yeah. getting into this software and, and, you know, making really bad Aphex Twin ripoffs, <laughs> which was definitely <laughs> my bench at that, at that time. But, um, yeah. so for, as the class progressed and as, um, you know, I got a bit deeper into it, the, the second level class, um, was almost exclusively just studio time. Uh, so at that time, yeah, I was playing in like a, uh, uh, like an emo rock band with my friends. Um, and so I, I probably recorded like two, like two or three of our songs. Um, I had other friends. I think my other friend in the band was also in the class with me. So we sort of had like double the time. Another guy in the class was looking for someone to record. And so we had just sort of volunteered like, oh, hey, like we've got four songs if you want to record an EP for us. Uh, so it was, it was really, it was, uh, again, talking about the, the tension between performance and, and recording or production, maybe, um, it was a cool opportunity to get to be on both sides where like I was learning how to, to play or like how to, you know, perform takes as a guitar player and, and as a singer probably in at some point, but also was getting a very intimate, uh, experience with being on the other side and learning how to EQ and, um, yeah, it was a really, it was a really like, uh, yeah, it, like fruitful time, fruitful, creative time for me. Um, I learned so much in those, I, I spent two years at that school and yeah, learned a ton. So you said that when your friend introduced mm-hmm. you to reason, that was nice to get something that's more hands-on and less about yeah. both like the heady and technical side of engineering. Did you still like that side of Musicality yeah, and, I, and I, it's we were working exclusively with Pro Tools in the recording classes in the studio, and I've always Reason felt like a video game, and Pro Tools felt like you know computer software. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Reason was was colorful and fun, and and still is right. Like all of the those built-in synths are just. It, they've been built up as like legendary in my mind, which is so hilarious to think of. Yeah. But um, <laughs> Pro Tools was very 
felt very clinical. Um, it was more about getting good sounds coming straight into, you know, into the software. It wasn't about building the sounds within the software. So I think I have a respect for both sides of it. It's, you know, it's less fun, I suppose, in my mind to like set up a mic and have it sound really good. And that's, that is, is good, especially when, you know, that's the, the objective. Yeah. But to sit and reason and like sequence synthesizers and, and like go through all of those samples and, and come up with, with songs and albums that all felt, I loved how self-contained it was. Um, I was able to, to do this artist thing, just sitting in my room at my computer, as opposed to having to pack up my stuff and, and, oh, well, you know, that guitar sound isn't quite right. You know, it was, I think I, I learned a lot about, um, work processes from, from learning those two different pieces of software, but totally different processes. Part of the reason I'm so interested in kind of the dichotomy between those two is I see a lot of producers that are kind of trying to figure out what they want to do for after high school. Should they go to a recording school or should Mm. they like just kind of produce on their own? So it's interesting to hear that. Um, I know kind of like talk on how important that was for you, both with the in-class and it sounds like to a large extent, the out-of-class experiences and how they kind of developed Yeah, totally. It's really funny to think because I don't, it's so dependent on on the individual situation, right? Like there are probably situations where, especially now kids kids you know young adults have yeah i'm saying that as like a 34 year old who's like (laughs) looking at these kids that are like 16 and they're so incredibly adept at using like you know yeah ableton or or any piece of software i i i really wonder if it's worth the the money and you know sometimes the the, the big commitment of going and studying producing um, when they already have access and knowledge to so much. Right. But in my experience, it was, in, it was huge. I was, I like I said, I was living in, in Manitoba. I was living in a really small town. There was no one really that was into music or like, I never, I never had a high school band. I like never went to shows when I was in high school. I, that sort of version of teenage life was something that I just didn't experience. But when I went to, when I went to college, it was, that's where I had all of that. I started going to shows. I started playing in bands. I started, you know, writing and recording music before it was all about, you know, you know, when I was in high school, it was a very sort of like me, like learning how to play, you know, Rage Against the Machine songs (laughs) on my guitar in the basement, you know, like it didn't become this, this sort of creative endeavor until I got to school. And so I do think that for, for a certain type of person who needs that community, I think that was a big thing for me is I just didn't have a community around me to, to support me and to, to inspire me and to say like, Hey, check out reason. It's this software that you can you know make beats in. Um, I, I just never, I never had that. And again, it was, this was, I graduated in 2003. So it wasn't like there was exactly there wasn't like um the type they they existed but those types of online communities weren't i i didn't have access to them at least right like um now it feels like all you have to do is is go on instagram and maybe 
type in the Ableton hashtag or go on YouTube <laughs> and you can find such a wealth of information and, and other people that are doing these same things. Um, it was so beneficial to me. And I'm sure that, you know, there, there are, um, you know, young men and women who are, are looking for those types of IRL communities to be able to get those, those types of inspiration and, and learn hands-on how to use these, these programs and software from really experienced, knowledgeable teachers as well. I yeah. think that's huge, but there's also, you know, there is, we just live in a world where there's so much information, uh, in regards to this world. So yeah, it's, it's really tough. I, I, yeah, I, I would recommend it to some and to others would say like, Oh, keep doing what you're doing. You know, mm. it's kind of funny to a large extent. I feel like one of the biggest benefits of going to a music school is just being around other musicians and the stuff that you do outside of the yeah. classroom. But, totally. which is kind of ironic, yeah. like you're not quote unquote necessarily yeah. paying for that, but it's an invaluable experience just being around other people that are as driven and motivated about music as you are. And you don't have to, Absolutely. Kind of like yeah. you're saying, you can find those people on Instagram. You just have to kind of put yourself out yeah. there and develop that. But for some school yeah. might kind of kickstart it, especially if they're living in an area where it's tougher to connect with those kinds of people in real yeah. life. That's a, and that was my exact experience. I, if I would have gone, if I would have gone the more academic route and, and, and gone to that, you know, college or that the, the more sort of established university where I would have been playing more classical and, and it would have, you know, my, my trajectory there just seems so much more, um, like something in the past where I yeah. would have, where like my goal would have been to play for like a symphony orchestra. It's so crazy to think that that there is some alternate reality where I took that path instead. So what kind of was your goal going into school? Man, that's the, that is the funny thing to think about is that <laughs> I really, I don't think I had one. I, all I could think of was just like, I want to record. It was, there was maybe something in the back of my mind that was like, I would love to be able to do this for a living. But I think I was very, I had very reasonable expectations. What's interesting is that I grew up with both my parents being very intentional about saying like, like no matter what, you should aim to get your degree because yeah. it's just going to be something that's going to help you in the long run in terms of getting jobs. Or, and so for me to study, to study you know, music and recording, they... Um, I don't think they were ever like, that's fine and good. Get your degree. But then once you're done with that, like, you know, maybe start looking like maybe go get your master's in something more applicable or, or something like that. Right. Like it was always, I always just had s this kind of support from, from my friends and family that was like, it seems like that's your thing. So just like, keep, go keep going in that direction and sort of see where it leads. Um, and what's funny to think is that I, I was never really, I don't think I was ever really asked that. Like, I, I don't remember friends being like, like, are you like aiming to become like a producer or an engineer, or are you aiming to become like an artist and sort of the more front facing, um, take that artist track. I just remember always like just always doing it. And never really with any sort of opportunistic goals of like, I want to be a celebrity or a superstar or even to a lesser degree, just a full-time musician. I, I, it kind of just very naturally happened. And, and it was a lot of like right place, right time in terms of making that transition from it being something that I liked doing to something that 
I started doing as as my career. I think there is like a beauty for when music does come out of that place. Like I think a lot of people get mm. in late because they see the career first and then try to fill that in with passion. Right. But I'm sure one of the reasons that you you said you're 34 and still doing this is it came right. from a place of a passionate hobby and then yeah. developed into something naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, so and I guess a part of my story too that is after this initial uh, interest and in, I I played with that band for a good like I think it was probably from 2003 to 2006. Um, and so we did some touring. I sort of got a bit of a taste of what it would be like to um, have music be a, a, a full-time job in, in sort of the traditional way that, that we see it as, yeah. as fans and consumers. Um, and I did enjoy it. I've, I've always loved traveling. Uh, like I said, being around a community of my friends or, or like-minded musicians has, is just something. I'm, I'm like one of those uh, very balanced introvert extroverts where like, I love going on tour and being with other people. And then when I come home, I like don't see people for a month or something like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I learned that music could be a really good job or a really great way to indulge in that, um, balance of introvert extrovert. So yeah, I, I, when I was done with that band, um, because I only did two years. And like I said, there was a lot of, um, I had sort of set this goal for myself, like, okay, I want to finish my degree. I want to get my bachelor's. Uh, I transferred to a school in BC, which is how I ended up um, out here and was making music the entire time. I still with reason, uh, I think from like when I first got the software in 2004 up until I started teen days in 2010, um, I probably made like, 30 records uh, that like no one heard <laughs> yeah Jesus. because I was just I was just so it was so much fun it was the thing that I would do when I was when I wanted to have fun you know like um, and I was in school for a, a good part of that time and if I didn't want to do homework if I I don't know I would always, I would, I love the idea of creating a project for myself and sinking time into that project. So it just, it, it became, I guess it's like you said, I never thought about like, I need to build up a portfolio of work. I need to create this, this, this career for myself. It was just, this is the thing that I gravitate towards. This is the thing that I want to do. Um, so I was just working constantly. Um, it's funny. It never felt like work, but now that I look at it, I'm like, that is, yeah, there are hard drives somewhere in some like closet in this house that have just tons and tons and tons of, of yeah. Reason files or like to very also to like very varying degrees of quality. I'll, I'll yeah. say. Yeah. So were you just kind of creating these records and keeping them on your hard drive, sharing them with friends, like kind of talk about, the lead up to when you started releasing with teen days. Right. I, yeah, I was actually kind of thinking about this in, in just in the last couple of days, like thinking about talking to you about this. Yeah. 
again, I, I, it never felt like it was something that I was very, um, like I didn't do a ton of self promoting really, but I definitely put stuff online. Um, yeah, I think my focus was more about, um, trying to do things locally, which is funny because I, I, I live in an area where there's not a ton, like there's lots of stuff happening in Vancouver, but you know, we kind of live in the suburbs. And so it's, it's just, there's less people interested in that world, especially for me making, making music, the music that, uh, as I said, when I started, it was definitely more like Aphex twin ripoffs, like, um, (laughs) It, it sort of gravitated into more of like a, um, a combination of like f- folky electronic music. I, I, the Album Leaf is a band that has always just sort of been uh, like a foundation staple band for me since I first heard mm-hmm. them, really. So there's always a lot of like electric piano. It was, it was like down tempo electronica, I guess you could call it, is what I was making. Yeah. And I would make these, I would make like a record every year, if not a couple, and then would maybe like have a, like put on a show at my school. Um, and I would sell, I would like make CDRs and sell them there. Um, (laughs) but I wouldn't, I wasn't like playing a ton of shows. It wasn't, again, like I said, it was always confusing to me how I could take this music that I made in reason and present it to people live without it just being like a karaoke or, um, and I didn't, I wasn't, uh, aware that Ableton even existed. So, yeah. you know, I would kind of like press play on a reason file. And then, yeah, I, the live performance at that time was like, yeah, <laughs> very, very, uh, I don't know, messy, but anyways, yeah. yeah. To, to answer your question, I, it's really tough to say, I, I guess I was sending it to people. Um, I, I, I was giving it to friends, but I never had friends be like, your album is like the greatest thing I've ever, I was, you know, I wasn't getting this like super, super positive response from my friends. So I don't, I don't really know. I just, I, again, it it just felt like it was something I recognized it as something that I really liked doing. And as kind of this, like always changing puzzle, right. Every single record I would make is like, okay, well now I really want to explore these types of sounds. And so here's 10 tracks that sort of sound like this, or, you know, oh, I just got this new upgrade to Reason and you can do this in it. And so I really want to explore that process. It was more yeah. about that than about um, like, here's this collection of music I made. Here you go, world. I like, like yeah. enjoy it or, or, or critique it and like know who I am through this music. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, it felt, again, in in retrospect, it's so crazy to see it. There's a real refining that was going on throughout this entire period of my life where, um, I think it was, it was like practice, uh, making these albums was practice until it got to a point where it was like, there are, there's now an audience of people that want to hear what I'm doing. Um, and it's a good thing I've been practicing for the last 10 years because yeah. now when I give them something, it can be something that I'm like, feel fully confident in. Mm-hmm. I think it's super important to talk about because you've got like, I don't know, between like eight and 10 albums on your Spotify, but it sounds yeah. like you've created 40 or 50. 
And yeah. I think a lot of people don't see that with their favorite artists. They see them yeah. have this like perfectly polished brand and EP that they launch with. And they're like, oh yeah. my gosh, they're so much better. How do they get that good? But they don't see yeah. the, for you quite literally 10 years and hundreds yeah. of songs and, you know, dozens yeah. of different albums that you're creating. And, and so many, um, unfinished as well. Like I, yeah. I think it's, um, Dan Snaith from Caribou, whenever he talks about the sort of the, the, the amount of stuff that is just like on the cutting room floor before one of his records come out. I'm pr- yeah. like, I, I remember hearing something about like, Oh, he made 900 tracks before Andorra came out. And like, <laughs> that blows my mind. Like, but, and, yeah. and how many of those are like opened a, a pro tools file, you know, recorded a, a 30 second loop or something. And it was just like, Oh, I'm not feeling that today. Put it away. Um, Cause Lord knows I have enough of those. There's just like, <laughs> And uh, I, I feel like this is sort of yourself and the audience listening uh, can appreciate this. Like so many file names that are just like, this is bad. This is horrible. This is shit. <laughs> like, like you yeah. spend whatever, you know, an hour working on something and you listen to the loop and you're just like, no, this is, <laughs> I'm going to save this because, you know, I, we're all sort of like um, archivists or collectors in that sense, I guess. But, but knowing yeah. like, I'm never going to come back to this. So, yeah, the, I, I think it's safe to say that, you know, like you said, any artist that, that appears to be coming out with, um, coming out the gate with something that's really refined and uh, nuanced has, has put in a lot of work to get to that point. So you were making all these albums and then your first official release, album release under Teen Days was in 2010. Kind of talk about what led you up to that and that first initial big record for you. Yeah, totally. So I had I had a name for the project that I was releasing um, all of these records under. And my it was the last record is under that name that sort of... Um, was the, f- the first one that caught any sort of attention outside of my own little bubble of friends and people that I was going to school with and stuff like that. Yeah. And what had happened was I had uploaded the album or an early version of this record um, to like a music torrent site. And someone had downloaded it and sent me a DM and said like, hey, uh, is this your music? And I was like, yeah, it is. And, and he was like, Oh, I'm I'm in the process of starting kind of like a small internet label. Um, I just wanted to know if you would be interested in, in possibly releasing it. And it was the first time I had ever been approached by even uh, you know a small sort of DIY internet thing like this. Um, so I yes. like yeah, I jumped at the at the um, chance to do it, and it was it was it was a fun first experience in that like it was the first they they pressed cds and so i like had had my own cd and i got my friend to take the photos and everything and it was the first time that i had something that felt uh professional and not just like a cdr and what's funny is that in all of that sort of those good feelings of having it be your first it was also the first time that i was really putting something out in the world for people to hear and 
I think it got reviewed by like two Canadian blogs or, or like music sites and they both just completely trashed it. Uh, <laughs> and at the time I'm like, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm totally new to this. So I'm like, wow, this site reviewed my record. That's so crazy. And then I read the review and it's just like, this guy <laughs> has no business being in front of a microphone. And like, he's like, <laughs> yeah. So Harsh. I think that experience kind of like, um, it, it definitely made me rethink my process, but also around the same time, what it, uh, I had booked a tour for this project kind of in, in relation to this record coming out. And, um, it was maybe more than anything, just an opportunity to like get a whole bunch of friends together and, and kind of go on a road trip. Um, but on that tour, um, I got a chance to open for a band that was called gobble gobble, which is crazy. They, um, this is my first time interacting with them, meeting with them, but they've since the, the members of the band have gone on to do really, really huge things. Um, and in that process of getting to know them, it was, it was the first time that I think I'd sort of connected with people that had aspirations that were bigger and were like, we want to be a touring electronic act. We want to, you know, like I had never really, yeah. I'd never really encountered people that were doing electronic music on a bigger scale. So after that tour with that project, I was sort of like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like I don't, I, or if I do, I, I really want to drastically change what it sounds like. So I started working on music um, that became the first Teen Days record. And another big thing, the music that I was making before teen days sort of right before when that, that record that came out that that wasn't really received well it was much more like it was almost like cut copy it was sort of like dance music but with guitars and there's singing on every track it wasn't like I, I it wasn't inspired by like you know um traditional dance music you could say like you, you know whether it's disco or house or techno or something and there was something around that time. I think it was, yeah, this is the start of 2010. Um, the, the washed out EP and the Tori Moi record came out and those two albums just like, um, completely altered the way that I thought about making electronic music because they were doing those things where they were, you know, singing on tracks and it, it felt homemade which is something that I was like, I'm making music at home as well too. And, and it was funny to think that really it was, it was just a shift in BPM. I was making music that was more at sort of like <laughs> 128, like more like, you know, uh, danceable music and everything just got shifted down. And so I thought like, I, I would love to sort of like, like I said earlier, how it was all about finding new influences and seeing like working with those influences, seeing what sort of things I could get out of that. Um, and when, as soon as I heard those records, I was like, what would it sound like if I just dropped the BPM? Um, and so that, yeah, that resulted in probably about 20 tracks that I made from, from like January, 2010 to about like April, I think. And okay. so I was finishing up my fourth year of college, uh, was about to graduate with my degree and was kind of, you know, was thinking about the future and was just like, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, like, like said, like you said, I like asking about goals. I was like, I don't really have any specific mm. goals, but 
you know, I'm going to send this music that I'm making to these guys from Gobble Gobble that I met and see what they say. They seem to be like getting connected with, with more people. And, and at the time it was like music blog world and they knew a bunch of bloggers. And I was like, maybe if they like it, they would pass it along. So I sent it to them and the response I got back from them was like very clearly like, this is great. You need to make a new name for this project and let's like, I'll introduce you to like three or four different bloggers. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I made a MySpace page. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I didn't have a name for the project at the time, or I knew that I wanted to sh- shift away from the project I had been doing to some, kind of start fresh. And one of the tracks that I had made was about uh, a friend of mine that was celebrating his 20th birthday. And the day before, uh, there was like a teen day that, that got set up for him. <laughs> so they like, you know, went to Seven Eleven and got Slurpees and like loitered at the train tracks. And I don't know, just like <laughs> sort of did classic yeah. teen things. And uh, so I had this song that was about that and it was called Teen Days. And I was like, you know what? I think that's a better name for the project than for this song. So, so again, very loose, very low expectations yeah. was like, I'm going to put up a MySpace uh, put two songs up and, you know, I'm graduating, but I've got, and I've got other things that I'm, I'm, you know, I was making more sort of straight ahead folk music at the time as well. And that was felt a little bit more in fashion. And I was like, well, like maybe there's more interest there. And it was just like, let's see what happens. Um, and it's, it, that was such a crazy summer. Basically, uh, those two songs got posted on, on blog after blog after blog and mm-hmm. it went it, it was this snowball effect where like one of them would post it and then the next day it would be like two of them had posted it and then four um and yeah. at, at the time what was happening is these sort of smaller blog spot like diy sort of sites were getting eyes and were getting attention from some of the bigger outlets so someone at Pitchfork was reading these, saw that and was like, oh, okay, like I'm going to post these Teen Day songs on Pitchfork. And then that summer, I think they posted something like five or six of my tracks. Uh, and then emails started coming in from labels and management companies. And it was, it was insane. It was, it was truly every single day I would wake up to an email that just like blew my mind that I was completely not expecting um yeah over the span of like two or three months it's it happened so quickly that i i really wasn't prepared for it in a lot of ways um and it sounds like all of this with a record that you didn't necessarily see as taking off and launching your career absolutely like, no you, know, it you was, like changed your branding you did a couple things with it but yeah. it didn't seem like you're like this is gonna take me to the stratosphere i'm gonna be no. playing at all these like shows and stuff not at all but i was thinking it, to myself yeah. like these are the b-sides for the 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 dance record that i was making with this other project that are a little bit too mm-hmm. sort of slow or weird uh and kind of feeling like bad about myself being like i don't know if i'm like, I have fun doing this, but it doesn't really feel like people are into this stuff that I'm making. Um, and then doing something like truly just out of pure enjoyment and passion and being like, uh, that the, this first record, this record I've been talking about is called Four More Years. And the entire thing is, is littered with inside jokes between my friends and I, 
um, even the, the title, Four More Years, I had friends that were in their second or first year at school as I was graduating, and they would joke to me about how, like, you know, we need four more years. Like, you have to come back and get a different degree. Um, yeah. There's, like, Friday Night Lights references in there. There's, like, it's it's just, it, it when I look at it now, it feels, it's very much a, you know, 24-year-old that's graduating from college and <laughs> is making music for fun. And that vibe just resonated with people. I, I, I guess I, I still am sort yeah. of like, um, can't really explain it, but I'm, I'm just so thankful that that series of, of events happened where I, you know, put out a record that didn't do very well. I happened to meet this band in Winnipeg, Manitoba at a show who, you know, gave me the confidence and, and the, the, you know, it's kind of a gross word, but like the networking to be like, Hey, here are some people we know that could get your music to more people in a very real and not opportunistic way. Um, and I'm so thankful for the way that all of those things happen because yeah, it's, it's January, 2020. I started work on the first teen days record 10 years ago and I've been doing it full time basically since then. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy. So talk about, you had that first kind of big record with um, with four more years. Uh-huh. Talk about how your mindset kind of shifted when that started to get the response that it did. Yeah, um, I think the biggest challenge for me at that time was trying to discern the real and good opportunities that came from it, and the things that were more um, kind of like stereotypically shady industry things. So yeah. I had to learn very quickly that you can't say yes to everything because um, that's going to get you into situations that you don't want to be in. I've worked with a couple of like heavy air quotes labels uh, who <laughs> promised me, yeah, we're going to press 500 records and they didn't press a single one um, who have, you know, screwed me out of money that I was owed. Uh, and a lot of that had came from just a, a, a complete lack of being able to make those discernments. To go back to what we were talking about earlier, this might be a situation where if I would have gone to a, mu- a true music school where I could have taken music business classes or something like that and learned yeah. about, hey, uh, if you're releasing music into the world and you... Uh, you know, you should know what you're owed, what you're entitled, what rights are, uh, keeping the masters to your records. All of these things were just totally, you know, I saw an opportunity that I thought would be good and was like, yeah, okay. And then, you know, six months later, I'm finding myself in a, in a situation, like I said, I don't want to be in. Um, and, and some of those, the opportunities that came up that I said yes to were, were incredible experiences. And I'm so glad that I did say yes to them and that I was open to them. But yeah, I had to, it opened, releasing that record opened up a, f- a whole world of doing music that um, I had just never considered before. Um, yeah. Which was tough because really all I wanted to do was keep doing what I'd been doing, which is, you know, sitting in my room making music. Um and it, it forced me to be more savvy uh, in dealing with people than I think I was, I was ready to do. But other than that, it really, it, it, 
it was just me trying to hold on to that, that feeling of, of, or that process of just, I just want to make records. I just want to put out records. Um, and again, like I've been saying sort of throughout our talk here is learning the, that true tension between performance and recording, uh, because, you know, the first thing that happened was I started getting emails from venues saying like, Hey, we just heard your song. Like, are you represented by anyone? Would you be interested in coming to our, our venue in New York or Chicago or Boston, like to come play a show? And I was like, I have no, no idea how to perform this music live because it, it, it never existed in a world outside of my computer. Like I'll even, there's yeah there's like guitar parts in it but even like <laughs> i yeah. just the entire thing was a recording project and and like i said it wasn't even like a recording project that i had ever conceived of playing live because i did things in the recordings that were so loose and and so sort of the one of the songs has a key change in it that was just because i dropped the sample on the wrong key in the like the MIDI sequencer and was just like, Oh, yeah. I guess I'll roll with it. Or there's like a field recording of a voicemail that a friend left me like things that there's no way I could reproduce that live. Um, yeah. But like I'd said earlier, I, I had had some experience with touring and I really enjoyed it. I, I live in kind of an isolated part of, of the, uh, the continent and the thought of getting to go to New York to play shows or, or even Los Angeles, let alone going to Europe and, and doing things overseas. That's a, that was a very difficult thing for me to be like, you know what, I'm going to say no to all of those for a couple of years before I truly realize how to do this live, which in retrospect, yeah. I probably should have done. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I said yes and kind of learned in public and, and probably failed in public to, to some degree. But, um, yeah, to, to try and shift your brain from like being in that zone of making something in the moment and recording it to then presenting it on a stage to people was really, really difficult. And yeah, I hope that people, I, I think people were pretty gracious. I don't know. I'm my own worst critic when it comes <laughs> to this stuff. Like I, I can't yeah. think that those shows in, in the first, man, the first couple years of doing this, this project, uh, were were as high a quality as they um could have been but uh yeah it there is there was definitely a pressure to to go out and and perform and do those shows and um yeah it's it was a weird thing to to initially start to get my mind around so i kind of want to touch back on that idea you talked about how you've been doing this full-time with the project for about a decade. Mm -hmm. And it seems like going into that, music was always this very fun, playful activity for you. Mm -hmm. So how were you able to manage that when you had music being part of your career and your trajectory with that? How did you kind of deal with the aspect of this being full-time for you, like something mm -hmm. that is your quote-unquote job now, but still retaining as much of that free, playful aspect as you could? Yeah, it's been tough for sure. I think I, I realized the first release that I did after four more years um, there, I felt expectations for the first time, uh, yeah. which I had never felt before. And that felt strange. I, you know, I think I've always tried to stay really optimistic about it. Um, and 
try to look at it in this light of like, I want those expectations and that pressure to just make me better at what I do. And so I think I've used it as, um, as fuel in a way, or I've, I've used it to sort of create an infrastructure for myself where yeah. my, uh, my process is, is based around that idea of like, okay, if this is going to be my career, a, I don't want to lose this career because it it's my dream job, right? Like this is, I get to do the thing that I've been doing for fun um, for the last, you know, however many years, 15, 16 or something. Um, but also I, I want it to be as good as possible. And so I think I learned really early on that if I set aside time basically every day to do some sort of work to, to, uh, and I should say creative work, not necessarily like administrative, it's like, you know, sending emails or, or that sort of stuff. Yeah. I try and do some sort of recording every day. Uh, now my actually more recently, my, my life has changed in that my wife and I had our first baby. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. And so, you know, that obviously puts a, a, a new twist on, on what it means to yeah. <laughs> to take time out to record every day. It just, it's, you know, it's changed the way that I think about it. But honestly, over the last 10 years, that's been my, how can I, if I take those, that pressure of like, you know, expectations or, or like people looking at me as this is an established musician who's doing this for a living. There's a certain quality that's expected. Yeah. And while I try and keep that passion, obviously, um, I'm also not 24 anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think the I think the looseness of a college student, as opposed to like a 34 year old who has a child and a and a, a you know a very long term relationship and real world responsibilities, right? Like, yeah, that you're going to lose some of that energy, and I think that's good because. I don't think the world needs me to be making, you know, 2010s chill wave music anymore. Uh, and, and that's okay. I think we've, I, I always yeah. kind of hope that my audience has like been, been growing up with me at the same time, but you know, it's, it's, I've definitely, I think the music has gotten more serious as I've gotten older. Um, but at the end of the day, I, there's like, there's no feeling to me that's more fun than, than setting up a studio and, you know, maybe it sounds corny, but just like jamming or experimenting with synths and, and drum machines. Yeah. And that energy hasn't changed in these, you know, 15, almost 20 years of, of messing around with, with software and, and producing, um, I still get that same feeling when I'm like working on something that I'm really excited about. But again, it's, it's all about creating that infrastructure where that can happen. Um, I think if I was more, if I was a little bit looser with it, then I would, if that aspect of my creative life was more disorganized, it would be more difficult to sort of catch those feelings. Like I would, I would have to be, um, what am I trying to say? I would have to be more intentional about creating a situation where I could get that feeling. What do you mean by building up an infrastructure for creating? It's, it's kind of like, 
like I, I treat it almost like a nine to five. And again, this is altered in the last three months since, uh, since the babies arrived because I, the timing just doesn't work out. But honestly, for the last 10 years, it's kind of been from like 10 AM to 2 PM. I'm in the studio every day yeah, and working on something. And that's the time in my day where I'm like, that's where that feeling where I, I kind of chase that feeling. And then in the rest of my day is, is spent, you know, doing real life stuff. And if something sparks in my mind or if I'm like, Oh, I've, uh, this could be a cool idea and run downstairs into the studio da, 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 you know, quickly record something. Yeah. It's knowing that, okay, every day from this time, this is going to exist. I'm going to be able to, to indulge in this. And again, this is something that is incredible. I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to have something like that in my life where I don't have to go to a nine to five or I'm not in class, you know, like, um, doing music full time has allowed me to, to create that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm very happy about, but I think if I didn't have that sort of every day, I know that I've, I've got that time to work on stuff. Um, yeah, it would be, I would be much more scatterbrained. I would, I feel like the, the, the creative work would suffer. Yeah. It's obviously really great that you have that time. And for anyone listening that has a nine to five that isn't in music, it's great to at least just mm-hmm. have a small part of your day to do something creative musically. Yeah. Like I can't Absolutely. emphasize even just 30 minutes a day. Cause at least to me, it's like a domino effect. If you just do a little bit every day, just kind of keeping your mind and subconscious operating amount, operating around music is critical. Yeah. And when, you know, when I was in school, that's, that's exactly what I did. I would, I would set aside time every day to be able to do this thing. Um, and really if it weren't for that, then I wouldn't be here today. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I want to get into production in a moment, but before that, um, kind of more interesting part of your career and trajectory is the strong focus on album and album cycles, especially as our industry kind of moves away from albums. So I'm curious why that has been so important for you to not just focus on singles, but to have these kind of cornerstone albums that you release every one to two years. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like I said earlier, there's something about having grown up in a culture where that was, it was uh, this revered thing, right? Like I grew up with my parents' record collection and it was all of these iconic classic rock albums. Um, so I, I, it always just kind of made the most sense to me. Um, and I think it's because I've always just, I, I was like that guy who just like loved albums, you know, like whether yeah. it was like, I don't know, um, like Kid A is like my favorite record for, for the longest time that I can remember. And it was, I loved the idea that, it took you on this however long 40, 45 minute journey really through this entire thing. And it could explore different sounds and different feels, but it on the whole, it was this contained concise thing. And I don't, I don't know, maybe I also just like, I've always been drawn to, and yeah, I'm not embarrassed by this, but I could see how this would be embarrassing. But like, I love concept records. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I, like there's my, one of my favorite albums, 
Well, yeah, of all time, probably. Again, not embarrassed by this, though I, maybe I should be. I don't know. <laughs> no shade to these guys, but the Mars Volta, the uh, D-Louse in the Comatorium, their first record, I, yeah. that came out the year that I graduated, and I had never heard music like this before, and I was obsessed. I was obsessed with the album. I like spent so much time poring over the lyrics, trying to like figure out the story that was that was going on here. Aside from the music and the musicianship just being out of this world uh, crazy, mm-hmm. there was just something about that idea of giving people something that told a story or had some had a some sort of narrative throughout it. That yeah. has just always been very, it, it holds some sort of power to me that I, I really can't explain. I'm just drawn to, to those types yeah. of records. Um, which is funny, though, because you're totally right. I, we're in a, a, a music culture now that, yeah, that, that, that style or that sort of way of doing things, especially with the platforms and the way that they exist now and the way that people consume music, you're really asking a lot from a person to be like, Hey, I want you to sit and like spend 45 minutes with this thing. I think there is still a contingency of the population that really loves having that experience. But yeah, as a, as a create, as the person creating it, it's just kind of been the format that I've always worked with, but I'm also, yeah, I I'm, I'm not immune to the fact that things are changing and um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe we'll see what happens in the future. I, I don't have a concept or a plan for the next record. So maybe, maybe going the singles route, like wouldn't be the worst idea for me right now, but we'll see. (laughs) I think a really big takeaway for people that are kind of trying to find their sound that are listening to this podcast is looking back at those initial albums that you were creating. A lot of them were just an idea or a concept that you wanted to turn into five, 10 or 15 songs and I yeah. think the focus on the single-driven market, even though that you know it is for a lot of people the right decision, takes away the concept and character behind a project. So you mm-hmm. get more of these projects that are just kind of the same recycled thing that other artists have. There isn't mm. a story or emotion or narrative behind it, and they kind of lose fast. They lose track of that. I think there's plenty of popular electronic artists that have a really strong narrative to the music, like an Odessa or yeah. like uh, Porter Robinson's Worlds. I yeah. think both of those are concept albums and connected with people, even though they're still in this kind of electronic space, but yeah. there was more of a story behind it, which gave those individual songs just more character and purpose. Yeah, and I, th- I think in the same way that I found myself really connecting with those types of records, um, I think that you know, people just love stories and narratives. We, we see it everywhere. Um, and I think in, in this, yeah, in the same way that I've always found myself attracted to listening to those types of releases, um, it just, it's funny. It's always made the most sense to do that. Um, regardless of whether or not I was looking around and seeing like, Oh, a lot of my contemporaries just seem to be putting out EPs and, uh, yeah. Uh, or, or like collections of tracks that, um, that don't necessarily have a narrative and yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's tough to explain why I just feel so, um, drawn to that. I think personally for me, I like to have more direction and focus when I'm going into the DAW. Like if Mm. I just come in and I just see what hits me with inspiration, that's fine. 
But yeah. if I come in with a very specific plan or narrative and a sound palette and a direction and a visual direction for a few songs, I feel like the end result is going to be a lot better because I've got something yeah. going in and I don't just have this giant empty canvas. For me, yes. it helps to have those quote unquote restraints. Totally. I think you're totally right. And and like I said earlier too about how it felt like every record that I had made, you know, leading up to starting Teen Days, there was always, even if the concept was like, I want to make a record that focuses on the electric piano, or I want to make a record that's more sample based. There was still yeah. a loose concept. It didn't need to be this like mystical journey where like the main character is like encountering all of these like uh, you know metaphorical yeah. conflicts and stuff like that. It doesn't need to be that sort of prog rock idea that we have of a concept record, or even like a Sergeant mm. Pepper's like I'm going to put on a different hat and be this type of character. It can be yeah. as simple as um, I want to experiment in this certain way, and that can be the concept. Um, and again, you know, we t we talk about um, an artist like Dan Snaith, Caribou. Like, I think all of the artists that I've taken the most sort of or drawn the most inspiration or influence from are always uh, uh, changing and are reinventing themselves, and that reinvention mm -hmm. is is a concept in itself every time right like um another artist uh that that i've just been so drawn to and taken so much uh influence from is bibio someone who every every record it's very clearly him in each one of those records but mm -hmm. you know You've got a, um, a record like Ambivalence Avenue, which is more Dilla influenced, it's more sort of beats, it's a little looser, uh, as opposed to something like Silver Wilkinson, which is much more folk influenced. Uh, there's more acoustic guitar. And then like Phantom Brickworks, which is just a full on ambient album. That yeah. is, that's to me the model. Like, I want to be able to indulge in whatever um, interest I might have at the moment as I'm working on it. But like you said, having that interest at the start is so crucial for me because I'm the same way. Yeah. If I, if I just open up Ableton and I'm like, you know, I enter my 10 to two, uh, time of the day where I'm like, now I'm going to record. If I don't yeah. have something in mind or a specific, uh, instrument or sound that I want to explore or work on, it's tough. Like, uh, you, you, you could do anything. And because these, these dolls are so um, powerful and, and open and can do so much, it can be incredibly overwhelming. So yeah, yeah I, I suppose maybe that would be advice that I have to, to a person that is trying to figure out their sound is, you know, give yourself limitations and, and give yourself a vague concept. It, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't even need to be a part of the narrative of, of the album as it's coming out or the release as it's coming out of like, I decided to only make an album on the Korg M1 or, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm really, I love those types of records because I like seeing the way that people work within their limitations, but it doesn't need to be a gimmick. It can be just something that you in your mind are working through with your project. Yeah. Awesome. So I want yeah. to slide a bit over into production now. I really yeah, want to sure. talk about your songwriting workflow in particular because you've just released so much music consistently. So let's picture um, your child just got laid down for a two hour nap. You're walking yeah. into the studio. <laughs> kind of what does that process look like for you? Yeah. Okay. Well, so I'll, I'll kind of describe the space that I'm working in, which is really messy at the moment. But basically, 
I have a MacBook that sort of is the the center of everything. Um, I have a handful of synths. Um, I have my like Korg tree. So I have a Korg M1, a Poly 800, and a mini log. All of those are running into a small four-channel mixer, which then goes into the interface. I just have a small um, Focusrite Scarlet, uh, the two-input one. So I run the, the outputs from my small mixer into the input, which then all goes into Ableton. And then I have a handful of MIDI controllers uh, that I usually just use for live performance, but every once in a while I'll bring them out just to, again, spark some sort of inspiration. Maybe yeah. the drums, if I'm, if I'm like playing drum samples on a pad rather than just punching them in with the pencil, they'll, they'll have a different feel or, or it'll spark a different way of playing or something. Um, yeah, so like we said, usually there's some sort of Pro specific project that I'm working on at this point. It feels rare that I would come in and work on something that doesn't have some sort of end goal. Yeah. Um, so at the moment, I'm I have a a, a different project uh, that's still kind of that's still electronic music based. Um, that's called Pacific Coliseum, and I've been working on some stuff for that at the moment. So. It's more like a Balearic house. It's the, where Teen Days music seems to have gotten into more of an ambient world and, and piano-based. And um, this project is a little bit more geared towards, you know, DJ sets or um, that sort of world. So usually what it, what it would look like is I, like, love the pad sounds on the Korg M1. So most of the time my process starts with me like dialing in a pad sound that I really like. And yeah, this, this is funny. Maybe this is an aside, but I love talking about this sort of stuff with people that understand the context. And so like, yeah. if I say, yeah, I'm working on this Balearic uh, kind of dancey music, I know like, okay, I can set my BPM at like 104 uh, mm -hmm. I can dial in a pad sound that sounds very sort of summery and, and smooth jazz almost. Uh, and that just sort of takes it from there. Usually it's, it's experimenting with, with chord progressions and trying to, trying to get the right feel early in the process. And then okay. it just, and then it becomes a refining. I have a, a um, ever growing, folder of, of samples and drum sounds that I like to draw from. And yeah, it, it'll be pad sounds kind of get some percussion and drum sounds going, um, and see where that chord progression goes, what it feels like, whether it needs a live bass or some guitar tracks or whether it needs to be a synthesizer doing the bass. And usually I'll get, uh, I would say I get the track somewhere between 50 to maybe 70% of the way in terms of being able to look at the full arrangement. I like to try and get it as close to finished as possible when I sit down and it's very, I wouldn't say it's very rare, but if I'm working on a specific project, it's usually quite rare that I would start something and not get it to the point where I'm like, I could, put in maybe two or three more hours in mixing this and I could feel like it would be good to go. Okay. So it tends to, everything tends to happen very quickly, um, which is probably why, you know, like I said, there's like 30 or 40 albums that I've made in the last uh, decade. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I tend to not 
dwell on things for too long. And, and that's, that's actually a, kind of like a recording philosophy that I've picked up along the way. The idea of getting something down and almost bouncing it immediately. Like, okay, if I record that track, um, or if I record a MIDI part, especially, I'm going to bounce it to audio so I can't change it at all. Um, just, just continually be printing things the way that they are, um, so that you're forced to move on to an, a new arrangement layer or, you know, maybe like getting something, a song to the, to the furthest point that I can. And then just saying, okay, that's it. I need to write a new song. Uh, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's kind of, I, like I said, it would be, I try to keep it very self-sustaining in my own studio as well so that I don't need to take it somewhere else in order to, to do something to it. Um, but yeah, that's for the most part, it, it feels very, uh, very fast when I think about it. Yeah. I think one thing to kind of touch on with that is the importance of just being able to say yes or no and quickly Mm. make decisions Mm -hmm. is absolutely crucial. The more that you say, maybe the more that things are 2% off, the more that your workflow is going to get derailed and being able to quickly cycle through ideas, kind of throw stuff down and then get it to 50%, spread it out and get it to 80 or 90 is critical. Cause if you constantly second guess yourself, you're never going to push that track all the way through. Totally. If you're so worried about perfection the whole way throughout. So I could not emphasize enough (laughs) the importance of just saying yes or no as yeah. much as you can while yeah. producing. And and I like I'm not perfect too, right? Like, you know, I I've spent hours over EQing a kick drum, which I'm sure like anyone listening to this podcast yeah. has. Um and that's it it can be so easy to get stuck in those wormholes um or trying to find the perfect sample for you know, the perfect uh, drum sound or the perfect clap sound. Sometimes it can just be so liberating to say like I'm just going to load up yeah. <laughs> Ableton stock 909 <laughs> sound and that's it. And, and you know what? Uh, mi- like actually something that I've found myself doing in the last couple of months now, like I said, that my, my sort of workflow has been pleasantly interrupted, but interrupted nevertheless uh, yeah. <laughs> is during times where if I'm, if I'm just in the living room and I'm maybe checking my email or something and I get an idea for something quickly opening up Ableton opening up, like I said, just the stock 909 sound or, or the Lindrum or whatever sort of drum machine I'm feeling at the, at the time, using the key, computer keyboard to just quickly punch out an idea, saving it, putting it away and being like, okay, I'm going to visit that later. And sometimes mm-hmm. it turns into nothing, but sometimes it's great. And, uh, and, and to, to even get into to that, to say yes to that and be like, okay, that idea is good for where it is. I don't need to spend my entire day struggling to find the right sounds. I just want to get an idea down quickly. And then as time goes by and I can come back to it, then I can start fine tuning some things. But a lot of the times when I do that fine tuning, it's really, yeah, I'll like maybe replace uh, a higher quality sample of a kick drum or, um, you know, but it really, a lot of the times it's not like I'm making these huge changes where I'm, I'm overhauling things. Usually the, the first idea is the best idea or, or like the first take is the best take. That was something I picked up. I, I got a chance to record a record, um, at a studio in San Francisco that's called tiny telephone. And is this, um, indie kind of this indie legend named John Vanderslice. Um, he runs the studio. He 
produced and helped engineer the record, um, along with some other really talented engineers at the studio. But that album was was all live instruments. We we had synths on the record, but it definitely wasn't like an electronic album. Um, and I learned so much about making electronic music from that process of not making electronic music. Mm-hmm. He was he. If there was ever a point where it felt like the 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 takes were starting to go you know, downhill or, or I was starting to get frustrated by something not really working, it would be like, cool, like, let's press pause on that. Let's go do something else. Or let's leave the studio. Let's go get a sandwich or something. Um, his yeah. ability to read the room and say like, okay, this, to, to make those yes or no decisions, it was so clear that he has been working in this field for a really long time and knows exactly how to work in those situations. Um, yeah, And I learned so much about that. Even, again, like I said, with electronic music, it can be, you, like when you're working with MIDI, especially, you have so much room to go in and, and um, mm-hmm. you know, make these small changes. And I've really gotten into the habit of playing a MIDI part. If it needs to be quantized, then do some sort of like light quantizing, if you, if you want to call it that, maybe like 25% or something. And then just, like I said, bounce it to audio. I don't want to go in and have to change velocities on certain things. If it sounds good the way that it is, boom, done. Move on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, and that was, yeah, that was definitely something I picked up from John, and uh, which is so funny. It's a total like porting of different worlds because in that case, we were talking about total live instruments. Um, we were recording to tape as well, so there was no... There was no fine tuning on a monitor or anything like that. It was just sort of like, it sounds good. Cool. Let's move on. So I would, again, would totally recommend thinking about your process in that sort of way. Um, You know, like those first teen days records that I made a part of the reason why they feel as youthful and, and loose really as they do is because I, it was just like zero expectations. I didn't, it was just like, Oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> like save print, <laughs> move on to the next one. It, yeah. It, now I feel more of a responsibility of like, I'm going to, I'm I've been doing this for 10 years. I have a fan base. I, I want to present people with the highest quality version of what I can do. And, and that does mean trying to master my craft. And, and even in that idea of, trying to do the best possible version, you can get really bogged down in, in thoughts of like, I'm trying to make the perfect thing. Um, yeah, there is a balance that can be struck, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So I want to go back on something you said earlier, where in the start of your writing process, you try to get the right feel. Mm-hmm. I think that's an esoteric idea. So kind of talk about what that means for you. Yeah. It comes back to the idea of what the, the feel of the project is. So uh, I yeah. guess like a specific example I could use mm-hmm. is I, so in 2017, I'm put out a record called themes for dying earth. And as that record was coming out in like February, I think it was of 2017, I had started working on what would be my first album as Pacific Coliseum. And the whole idea there was I wanted to, explore that sort of Balearic house sound, but with, um, again, very nerdy specific thing, but I, I was taking my electric guitar, running it through, um, 
some like Waves uh, bass amp plugins. So it was getting a very sort of bass, live bass sound. But then I would record the part and then I would, again with my electric guitar and through that same sort of bass amp plugin would play a harmony that was higher up on the fretboard. And there's this sound that came out of that because like harmonized bass sounds are not usually, (laughs) they get very muddy very quickly. (laughs) But there was something about that sound that just like, I was like, oh, that sounds, it sounds like almost like a baritone guitar is playing a harmony over top of a real bass guitar. And both of, it was neither of those things. It was just a regular, you know, electric guitar. So that was like the feel for that album. In my mind, it was like, I want to explore what it feels like the bass is doing more of the melodic heavy lifting. So it was about creating a vibe that could emphasize that. So maybe that meant the pads that I was playing, I wanted to be in a higher frequency because I didn't, I wanted that frequency of those bass sounds to be what people were sort of like, uh, what was holding the main melodies in the songs. So if you go back and listen, there's probably, you, you know, you can hopefully hear that. Hopefully that's the thing that stands out. But a lot of the time, what I would do is, like I said, play a pad sound, get, get something that was a little bit more atmospheric, wasn't something that was going to carry the melody, but something that could create a, a bit of a bed to be able to play those, those bass sounds in. So I had a very, a, and that's a pretty specific concept for for working within um, a DAW like that or or any sort of you know creative situation so I think yeah I think when it comes into dialing in that feel it for me it always comes back to like well well what what is the actual concept that I want to express with with this feel uh, in air yeah. quotes or or whatever I think it does take that time and effort before you even, like you said, before you step to your computer or to your, before you open up yourself to making uh, something, it comes back to what, rather than just like, I want to create a feel or a vibe, you have to put in that work of like, well, what actually is it that I want to express? I think that's crucial. I think that goes back to that idea that we were talking about earlier with the concept album, Mm -hmm. just having a guideline or quote-unquote restrictions to throw it into is immensely helpful. Yeah, totally. So I kind of want to talk about a bit of your philosophy for approaching layering and mixing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, when they're trying to produce music in kind of the same space as you are with these more background ambient textures, they either don't have enough movement or interesting things going on, or their stuff just gets way too messy Mm -hmm. because they have too many elements going on. So how do you kind of find that balance between having too much and too little in this style of music? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, that's something that I I really do think about a lot. Um, It kind of comes back to one of the first lessons that I learned about recording all the way back at that school. Um, The idea that everything has its place in the frequency range and really trying to make sure that everything if you have things that are blending into the other, um, if you have instruments or parts or layers that are blending into other parts, making sure that they blend in a harmonious way, I guess is maybe a way to say it. And thinking about it in very sort of specific instrument sense. So, you know, you've got your kick drum, your bass sounds, then maybe your pads. And and then again, the mids carry so much, right? Like, 
there's there's synth sounds, there's guitars, vocals, and then your high end sort of um, you know hi hats and and sort of upper frequency drum sounds and stuff like that. Thinking about those instruments in very specific ways in terms of not letting things get bogged down in the same sort of frequencies, and obviously EQing is a huge. Uh, is a huge part in making sure you can put those things in specific places. But yeah, I, it's been a it's been a, a long process of of not only just striving towards that sort of objective uh, standard of, like I said, all of those things, um, all of those parts having their individual yeah. places, but also just finding out what works best for me because sometimes that way of doing things being so hyper specific about where things are are lying in the frequency range that can be one of those things that you just go down a rabbit hole and being like i've got you know some of the tracks that i've made have a hundred tracks in in a in an ableton session and and it's different synths playing the same melodies it's different pads playing the same chords and Sometimes that gets incredibly overwhelming and uh, frustrating and yeah. muddy. And sometimes it actually just works. For whatever reason, the tones that you're working with just work well together. And that probably comes down to the person's ear, being able to associate that, oh, this sounds pleasant and nice and not messy. Um, so, yeah, it, it really depends on the individual production. But I I think it's a good rule of thumb to to always try and say that less is more, um, you know, even when it comes to quote unquote, like big sounds, usually those big sounds are not, you know, five or six things blasting you at the same, (laughs) you know, at the same (laughs) frequency range. It's one really well tuned thing taking up all the space that it needs to. And it's funny to, to talk about that again, as I'm working on some more sort of traditional, house music and dance music right now with this, the Pacific Coliseum stuff that I'm working on. That stuff is so, so uh, like when you're playing your music through club speakers, man, you hear every, (laughs) (laughs) every single, there's no hiding. If you've got like a a kick drum, that's not tuned to the key of the song, Ooh, it can sound, (laughs) uh, it'll show you, it'll be messy. Um, And that's, that's okay. Right. Like those are, those are uh, growing pains almost, I feel like, yeah. that, that you have to work through. But it, it does take a certain amount of detail and a certain amount of, um, of fine-tuning to really be able to, to dial in a quote, again, like an objectively like good sound. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like with anything, right? It, it is a balance of trying to find something that, it works for you and and sounds good to your ears, but uh, is also the highest quality possible that you can make. So you kind of mentioned some of the analog gear that you use. It's always fun to give people some of the, I don't know, grittier producer tidbits. So what are some other mm-hmm. plugins or tools that are pretty important to your workflow? Yeah, I, I've just, I would say recently meeting within the like probably the last five years have started working on... Um, working on like a synth collection, but for the man, for the years leading up to that, it's like I said, I was, I worked in reason for a really long time and and got very used to 
the you know Thor and <laughs> it's so crazy to think of. I I like haven't I haven't used the software in, in a couple of years now, and um, uh, I think back on them very nostalgically. But yeah, I think I realized that the it's the NNXT sampler in Reason came with um, some sampled analog synthesizer sounds. Um, so they had an SH-101, um, there's an Ensonic, like the, uh, I think it's the SQ-1 it's called, okay. and a couple of Moog sounds in there. And, and uh, it's, again, it's so funny to, to think about at the time, I had no access to those real synths, but also there was way less of the like sample pack culture that exists now, where, let alone the VST culture, where you can, you know, get official um, reproductions of those synthesizers by yeah. the company. So yeah, I, that was sort of my start of, of learning um, what sort of, you know, learning that the SH-101, oh, that's like a great bass synth, aside from from all the other things that I can do. But yeah, yeah I, I think that's the, I'm trying to think of some, I really like the Arteria, the like V collection. Um, I really like, there's a an FM synth VST called uh, I'm just going to open Ableton right now, actually. Oh, okay. So the company is called Digital Suburban and it's called Dext, D-E-X-E-D. I think it's a free plugin. I learned about it through um, Fortet when his last record came out. Uh, he on on Bandcamp it says here are the list of VSTs that I use, which was like <laughs> such a Fortet move, such a Fortet move. <laughs> this is the room that I recorded and mixed the record in, yeah. uh, and I and I saw that one and was like, oh cool, like I'm gonna. I, I looked up all the VSTs that he used just to sort of out of sheer curiosity, and I've ended up using that one quite a bit. There's there's a couple there's lots of sounds in it and. Um, yeah, it's there's some there's some really great FM sounds in there for sure. Yeah, like I said, the Korg M1 has sort of become my like workhorse synth. There's, I I really love analog synthesis. Like the the, the mini log, excuse me, the mini log has been a lot of fun to work with because of how flexible it is, and you can you know start with a very simple sawtooth oscillator and and go in and alter everything and you've got the knobs and I, I love getting into that sort of stuff, but yeah. man, there's something about like a DX seven or the M one or like the Korg wave station that just have these sounds that are so iconic in and of themselves Yeah, that let alone like, you know, a three Oh three or, or like the nine Oh nine or eight Oh eight does these, these classic things that you, you don't want to mess with the presets I'm like, I'm really into that right now. Like, uh, there's, there's a couple sound, there's a pad sound on the M1. It's actually the very first patch that opens up when you turn it on and it's called universe. And it's just this like super expansive <laughs> pad with these, like, uh, it's, it sounds very sort of new agey, uh, or like eighties synthy. Yeah. And I, I really love, again, it, it comes back to this idea of, I like to work really quickly and, if I don't have to spend 30 minutes up to, I mean, you know, hours trying to dial in that exact perfect sound. Yeah. I love just loading up a patch on a classic synth and being like, um, not feeling bad about the idea that I'm using this sound that probably 
hundreds, if not thousands of other producers have used before, but putting my own twist on it in the arrangement. Um, yeah. I, I, I really go to bat for that M1. It's, uh, yeah. it's a lot of fun. Well, I think it's crucial kind of saying you're taking those sounds and then doing something unique with it is yeah. critical. Like, I think, it, you know, you can use presets, you can use all these things, but as long as you're doing something new with it, which you are with your music, you're yeah. using that to achieve something bigger with a song or a project. Yeah, totally. And I don't, I try not to let, I try not to let the, the preset or the, that patch stand on its own. You know what I mean? Like that, I'm not using that as the focus of like, the focus of the track is not that, Hey, it's this preset. It's more like I, when you turn on a, when you hear a track or something and you're like, Oh, I know what that sound is. Like whether it's, you know, again, like a classic, like the M1 has a, the organ bass sound, which is sort of the like classic um, early house music sound. Anytime I hear that on a track, I'm just like, yes, M1. Like, uh, you know, like I get stoked on it. And that's what I try and do. I try and have it be more of an homage almost to the synth and to the history that's come before it. Like um, to, to shed light on the fact that this is, people were using these patches in the 80s and 90s because that's what they had. And they made incredible music out of that rather than being like, you know, um, I'm just trying to mimic the same thing or, um, you know, I guess it could maybe be considered now, like, is it, uh, is it lazy if I just like turn on a patch and like, you know, here's like house music, you know, yeah. here's the, you know, here's all the sounds that everyone uses. And it's about finding what works for you, I think. And I think that's crucial. And in my opinion, listening to music, you're not making sound design records. You're not making sound design over a beat. You're making music records. And if those are the exactly. tools yeah. that help you get there the fastest and the most efficient, that's awesome. Yeah, totally. So we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. What advice would you give to somebody that's kind of just starting out with music to give them the best chance chance to succeed moving forward? Yeah, I think no. I mean, and there's this could probably be its own podcast in and of itself. <laughs> um, I think having a clear idea, having a vision really of what you want to do is, is important. And obviously that takes time and it takes going in different directions and then maybe realizing like, Hey, you know what? This isn't the direction I want to be going in. Um, but having a vision, I, I, I think that's something I, when I look back, that's something I wish I had a little bit more of. Mm -hmm. Um, like I said, not only just in a creative sense, um, cause I, I kind of like the idea that my, my creative vision is always um, serves the purpose of whatever the record or the project that I'm working on at the moment is. Yeah. Um, but my kind of overarching vision for this project was really like, I want to make records. I, I want to make music uh, and release them. And I think I could have saved myself a lot of stress and, um, you know, and just sort of, um, thoughts of insecurities or, yeah. or thinking about just, this is what I want to do rather than like, okay, well, how do I make this a live show? Or, you know, again, that tension of performance and, and recording has always been this underlying thing that's gone on in me doing this project. And so I think 
if you want to be a performer and you want to take your music and share it with people, which I think the normal person does want to do, have a clear vision of, uh, of what you want that to look like. Because the truth of the matter is when I started, I didn't have a clear vision of, it was like, I was getting opportunities to play and I wanted to say yes because they sounded fun. And there was money yeah. involved, obviously. And, <laughs> and, and that's what you do. Like, quote, you know, air quotes this, what you do as a musician is you go on tour and, and you play shows. And, but really, when I was making these initial songs and, and honestly, throughout the project, it's, it's always been like, how can I express what I want to express through this record? Um, and I think if you write out the gate, you can be like, here's, here's how, what I want this project to be. Do I want this to be something that I make records and then I go DJ? That's, that, that's more of what I see myself doing in, in the years to come. Yeah. Um, as I get a little older and a little bit more confident and like, uh, you know what, this record, I can't play live. <laughs> Let's, yeah, yeah. I, I love DJing. Let's just go do that. Um, or, or if you want to be like, this is an album that I want to present to people in full and I want to have a visual aspect to it that, that helps emphasize certain parts of the record, you know, like just have a vision, know what you want to do. Um, and honestly, that vision can be as simple as like, I've got tracks, I want to go play them. That's, yeah. that's super cool, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, go, go do that. But it's when you spend that time in that limbo of like, ah, I don't know if I want to do this or, or maybe I'm feeling pressured to go do this and I don't want to, or I'm, I'm feeling like I, I have to make a certain type of sound in order to, you know, fit in or, or feel relevant. Yeah. Definitely be true to yourself. Like, and that's, Mm -hmm. that's like after school special corniness (laughs) right there, if I've ever heard it, but, but really like, know what you want to do as a producer and as an artist and then make that vision for yourself and do it. Cause I think that's when I look at uh, friends and peers, people that are doing music in, in a, in an incredibly successful way and very popular way, all of those people, they know what they want to do and they know they've known how they want to do that for a really long time. I've had friends tell me things like, you know, they, they, before they put out their first record, they were thinking about five-year plans. And that is incredible to me. I wish I had that sort of foresight to be able to do that. Um, and I guess, yeah, as you're starting out to think about it, like have fun doing it, enjoy the process, but don't be afraid to think a little bit further, uh, maybe than I did even. (laughs) Yeah. I think a little thing to add on top of that is, it's good to have that plan to have something to chase, but it's yeah. going to change and it's okay if it's not. Absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. And, and you're going to learn as you go, you know, you're going to have experiences. Maybe you play a show and you realize in that process, like I need to spend more time sorting out how I want to do this. Or maybe you, you work with a label that you realize, Oh, you know what? This label, um, this label is actually maybe not the vibe that I want to go, you know, or, or, or you put out a record and you want to change your sound of the next album. Like always do like as, as long as you, as long as you can stay true to that vision that you make for yourself, that vision is going to change, but it's, it's, you're going to find yourself just being so much more at peace and content with the things that you're making. 
if you can find yourself in that position of moving as you go and uh, yeah, being, being adaptable. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Cause, cause it's going to change undoubtedly. I have watched the, the music industry, a large change um, over 10 years of doing this. And it's undoubtedly going to change the way that you look at your own music and the way that you release music to the world. And if you can't adapt with those changes, then it's, it's going to be more difficult for you. So yeah, find your, be, be adaptable, but you know, also, also have an idea of where you want to go. All right. So to close things out, let's kind of talk about what's going to be coming up for you in the next zero to six months. Yeah. So I, do you have a new EP that's going to be coming out um, at the end of the month, I believe? Um, it's it's kind of a crazy project. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of wondering how much I can... I'm sure it's not a big deal. Uh, <laughs> how much I can talk about it. But So a, a collection of investigative journalist pieces, investigative journalism, uh, done by this reporter named Ian Urbina came out in October of last year called the outlaw ocean. And it's all about, um, international waters, um, talking about some of the crime and stories of things that are happening out in international waters. So he has approached several different artists, myself included to create music, um, that's inspired by the book, but also using field recordings that he took while he was out there, um, doing this reporting. Um, and so, yeah, I've got five pieces that I made, um, that use a whole bunch of different field recordings he used. They're all sort of associated with different chapters in the book. Um, yeah, that's going to be coming out at the end of the month. It's almost like a score for a book, I guess. That is awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it was a really fun project. Um, it's very unique. Totally. I've, I don't think I've ever... I don't know if I've ever really seen anything like it. So yeah, I'm hoping it really resonates with people. Um, I finished up a film score for a movie that is slowly being released. Um, it's going to be hitting festivals later this year, I believe. Um, that's going to be coming out. Yeah, I've got a couple more singles, Teen Days tracks that I'm hoping to get out at some point this year. And then mm-hmm. my my other um, uh, project, Pacific Coliseum, I've got a couple of releases lined up for that project as well. That'll be probably like spring and fall, those uh, records will come out. Yeah. And then other than that, I'm in like dad mode at the moment. So uh, <laughs> I'm enjoying my, my uh, paternity leave, my self-imposed paternity leave, basically. <laughs> Well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can find Teen Daisy's music in the description of this episode, so go give that a listen as this podcast is just about over. Jameson, it's been great chatting with you and appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me.